This is Max Hedrum. Hello? Anybody home? Hey! Our generation may not remember the moon landing, but we remember moon boots. If you owe a few cavities to candy cigarettes, learn your adverbs from Schoolhouse Rocks, burned your shins on a hot middle slide with sharp edges, exploding pop rocks for science, and you still want your MTV, then this podcast is for you. Dancing with Myself is dedicated to the decade of excess, the 1980s. So pull up your leg warmers and let's get physical. Hello, you are listening to Dancing with Myself, and I'm Heather. In the late 1970s, the National Basketball Association was in trouble, with several franchises facing bankruptcy. But the 1979-1980 season introduced two charismatic rookies, Magic Johnson of the Los Angeles Lakers and Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics, who launched a renaissance that helped turn the league into a billion-dollar enterprise. As the decade progressed, the NBA would showcase many all-time greats, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Julius Irving, and Moses Malone, as well as newcomers Michael Jordan, Hakeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, John Stockton, Carl Malone, and Isaiah Thomas. But Bird and Magic outshone them all. On June 8th of 1982, the Los Angeles Lakers, led by Magic, won the NBA title against the Philadelphia 76ers. The year before, the Celtics got the best of Magic Squad. Incredibly, every year throughout the decade of the 1980s, either the Celtics or the Lakers were in the NBA Finals. And during this time, Magic's Lakers won five NBA titles and Bird's Celtics won three. These two men met in the Finals three times, 1984, 1985, and 1987, with the Lakers prevailing twice. Both athletes won the NBA's Most Valuable Player Award three times each and liked and respected the other player. Magic of the Bird, he was the only player that I truly feared, said Bird. Magic is a great, great basketball player. The best I've ever seen. On February 14th of 1983, the now-iconic Trump Towers opened in Midtown Manhattan, pushing its owner, Donald Trump, to celebrity status. The same was true for Lee Iacocca, who brought the world the minivan when he introduced the Dodge Caravan on November 2nd of 1983. Lee Iacocca and Donald Trump both became popular business icons of the 1980s, yet they were a study in contrasts. Iacocca was earthy and personable, as Donald Trump was flashy and egotistical. Iacocca rescued Chrysler Corporation from bankruptcy, saving thousands of jobs. Trump parlayed real estate deals into a fortune that enabled him to consume conspicuously. Trump's worth was estimated at between $1 and $3 billion, and Iacocca's was $20 million. Iacocca gave both time and money to charity. Trump, too, supported charities, but mainly he acquired trophies, including a 50-room Manhattan penthouse, a 47-room cottage in Connecticut, a 118-room Palm Beach mansion, and a 282-foot yacht. Iacocca had a home in Detroit and a condo in Boca Raton. Each was outspoken in his own way. Iacocca, selling his autos on TV, quote, If you can find a better car, buy it. Trump, musing on his life, quote, I love to have enemies. I like beating my enemies into the ground. 
and both received relentless media coverage. Trump's fans besieged him for autographs as if he were a rock star. Iacocca's urged him to run for president. Interesting. Advertisements for Iacocca's minivan read, quote, A truly revolutionary vehicle. It can handle two adults plus 125 cubic feet of cargo, or five adults, even seven with the available rear seat. Yet, it's shorter than a full-size station wagon, so it's easier to maneuver and park. And it's easy to get the caravan in and out of your garage. Iacocca's invention helped Chrysler grow from $3.1 billion in losses in the late 1970s to $2.4 billion in profits in 1984. The buildup had been strong, but in 1982, hip-hop culture exploded. The hip-hop culture of the 1980s had its roots in rap music, which began in the 1970s in African-American neighborhoods of New York City. The music gained wide popularity after the 1979 hit Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. To achieve the unorthodox sound, rap DJs used multiple turntables and mixers to combine songs, rotate records forward and backward, called scratching, and repeat selected fragments, sampling. Grandmaster Flash, the Einstein of rap, explained, quote, I couldn't bear just sitting there waiting for the record to end, so I started inventing tricks. The DJs accompany the music with a syncopated spoken patter, the rap, a style that originated in African-American folk games. Breakdancing, a product of hip-hop, grew out of African and Caribbean dance techniques. Doing headspins, one-armed rotating handstands, and jump splits, breakdancers often competed with each other to see who could make the most spectacular moves. Teens across the nation enthusiastically adopted hip-hop music and dancing as well as its styles. The hooded sweatsuits, oversized jeans, baggy shorts, and backward caps worn by fans of hip-hop gradually filtered into the world of high fashion. Rap swept nostalgia aside and laid down a beat for the 1980s. Consisting of strongly syncopated, sometimes controversial lyrics, spoken rather than sung against a raw rhythmic backdrop, Rap evoked the urban black experience. Quote, it's a whole new subculture that's been invented by the disenfranchised, remarked producer Quincy Jones. And it's the freshest thing that's happened musically in 30 years. Rap, based on hard tales of street life in the inner city, matured in the early 1980s. The masters of this tough talk were Run DMC, a trio from New York, who scored Rap's first gold record in 1984 and carried the sound to the top of the charts in 1986 with their blockbuster album, Raising Hell. Rivaling the group in popularity and sometimes appearing with them was LL Cool J, whose stage name was short for Ladies Love Cool James. The poised 17-year-old brought his hit single, I Can't Live Without My Radio, to the big screen in 1985 in Crush Groove, the first rap movie. Rap concerts were occasionally marred by violence, and the music grew even more controversial with the emergence of gangster rappers, who filled their songs with obscenities and images of violence, rage, and the degradation of women. A backlash was inevitable. Taking the lead were the rap activists Public Enemy, who called for black unity and commitment in their top-selling protest album, It Takes a Nations of Millions to Hold Us Back. Female rappers joined in, starting with Queen Latifah, who talked back at the gangsters in her 1989 debut album, All Hail the Queen. 
By decade's end, some of the toughest talking rappers were joining stars like LL Cool J in discouraging violence. 